He has never failed me yet. This might be a minute. I was sitting next to Justin last week over here, and um, I showed him a handwritten note in my Bible. Last week was May 7th, 2023, and I saw the date in my Bible, May 6th, 2013, and I didn't remember writing that date in my Bible, (laughs) so so I read it real quick. This is from Psalm 32. I'm just going to read part of it. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, this is a Psalm of David, by the way. King David, the king of Israel, the man who the word of God describes as the man after God's own heart, the one who God chose to bring salvation through. I think it's worth noting. He said, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. And my note in my Bible says, this was me until May 6th, 2013. So I thought it was worth noting and um, got to privately and with my family, thank God for that having been 10 years ago. Um, And I just believe that he is um, leading me to share a little bit about that day and before and after um, with you because I believe that there is power in speaking the name of Jesus and that's all that I want to do. That is all that I want to do. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me the iniquity of my sin. I've got a note in my phone, and I can't remember where I wrote it down from. I don't think I came up with it. I think I read it somewhere. I just didn't write down who said it. There are two myths. I think it might have been Andrew Peterson. There are two myths we tend to believe about our stories. One is that they're about us. The other is that because they're about us, they're unimportant. As I thought about how to tell my story... um, There's a point at which two stories evolve. And it's hard for me to figure out how to tell my story. 
Because there's a specific moment in my life where there is the story on the outside and there's the story on the inside. And if you knew me, if you're not one of the few people who had a window in, if you knew me until 2013, um, the story on the inside wouldn't make any sense and you wouldn't think I was talking about me. Because I was duplicitous. I had essentially two lives. Um, And that day started when I, I can't remember the date, I don't have this date, but I think I was about nine years old. Um, I grew up in a Christian family, met the Lord at an early age, confessed that I met the Lord, was baptized at a young age, um, and had no reason to believe that I didn't know God. I was a middle child, and still am a middle child. Um, That didn't change. Um, And so I I was left to myself every once in a while, and I just developed a quiet personality. I kind of figured out how to get what I needed from my big family, family of six kids, and, um, but was very loved. And I want to make that point because I, I, I um, had a family who, who loved me very much and still do. Uh, and when I was nine, I was introduced to pornography by a neighborhood friend. And that's too young. But it happens, and it happens more now than it did when I was nine. And so, uh, word to parents there. Um, That brought a lot of confusion. It brought a lot of shame into my heart. Because I didn't know what to do with what I had seen. Um, Yeah, and so for the next couple years, um, it was just a period of... In shame, experimenting and searching for what what was this about? What is this out there in the world? Um, And uh, through continual access to technology that was not like it is today, but it is like it was when I was from 9 to about 15, um, every year there was more and more access to technology. I mean, it didn't have a and a license to go to the store and get a magazine, right? And look at things that have been around forever, but the way that we access them has changed. Um, But there was something about that shame that told me I can't tell anybody. So it developed into a habit of looking for pornography um, over, over the next several years. Um, when I was about 16, um, 17 maybe, I had, um, at this point, developed a full-blown addiction. I mean, it was me trying to find sexually explicit material any way that I could. Um, and I never told anybody about it. I was caught once or twice by my parents, um, and it wasn't addressed head-on. It was kind of pushed aside, right? It was, it was obvious that it, that it was wrong, and I knew it was wrong to begin with, um, but it wasn't addressed in a way um, where I, and I'm not, not faulting my parents, um, th- this was a, a, 
aspect of what sin always does. Sin always seeks more darkness. Sin always seeks more darkness. And so I, I chose to keep the truth inside. Um, and so every time I was caught, I said, oh, yeah, that was the only time, right? Yeah, that was my first time. Yeah, there's no more. <clears throat> um, and I became very good at hiding. I became very good at lying. Um, when I was about 17, I, I was fortunate enough to have a brother who perceived some of my struggles, uh, six years older than me, and introduced me to, um, I might have been 18, to a, an accountability group that was set up for the purpose of sharing, of walking in community, of um, opening up and confessing and forgiving and healing. There was nothing wrong with the purpose of that group. And so I joined the group, and I shared every once in a while. And I shared some things, but I never fully opened up. Because accountability is something that comes from the inside. So it continued year after year and got worse year after year. Um, I asked Emily to marry me when I was 19 years old. Can you believe that? They shouldn't allow that. (laughs) Sorry. Gratefully, she said yes. While we were engaged, I felt convicted. I felt convicted. I think I had seen some movie or read some book somewhere where some man's past came out deep into the marriage and it was destructive. And I just thought, I really felt like the Lord was leading me to marry Emily. And I thought, um, let's, let's tell her what she's getting herself into. So the story that she got was that I struggled with pornography, but I was in an accountability group and believed that I was walking in the light and in the truth and seeking healing and being healed. That was Emily's first experience in me telling her a little bit. I was a really good liar. Um, So she said yes. We got married when we were 20. Uh, I had read a very popular book on dating that had a very dangerous piece of advice for for moms and dads of teens out there. Um, And that was, if you are... are, um, If you are stuck in a battle with sexual passion, one of the ways to get through that is to get married. Because then you have a God-ordained outlet for that passion. Oh, that's terrible advice. <laughs> it is true that there's a God-ordained outlet for that passion. But it is not true that that is a way to um, heal from darkness. In any, in any realm. Um, please don't give teenagers that advice. <clears throat> Thanks for bearing with me. Sometimes it's hard to know how to, how to talk about it. 
Um, so it helped getting married. It helped. And I thought it worked until about two months in. And the habit came back. Uh, I, was, I was in a place in my life where the access was just really easy. Um, and there were some ways that I had a lot of control and making sure that I was accountable. It doesn't matter if it pops up somewhere else. You know, if it's not, like I said, if the accountability is not coming from the heart, then it is, is essentially meaningless because I believe the devil will always give you opportunities uh, even if you try to squelch them. So about two years into our marriage, um, I started looking at porn again. And I'm trying to get dates right. But about nine months into our marriage, um, what I believe was already adultery, as Jesus defines it, um, began manifesting itself in the flesh. Um, I had an affair, and then I did it again. Um, Two different times, um, I involved myself with prostitution. And this was while I was going to school for a Bible degree, while I was, I don't know what I was doing at the time, some sort of ministry role. And for about two months, um, the Lord just had his hand heavy upon me, as, as David said in Psalm 32. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And I believe that was the conviction to tell my wife about what had really been happening and how far this had really gone. So I did what at that point was the hardest thing I had ever done in my life. I decided to confess my affair to Emily. And so I sat her down and I told her, And it was probably 30 seconds before I actually started telling her that another lie came into my heart. And that was, if you tell her that you had an affair, that is being truthful. And I'm even wondering how many people catch the lie there because it's so sinister and it's so close to the truth. But as I said, I had done it twice. And so I broke her heart. It, it may or may not have hurt her any more deeply to tell her that there were two times. I don't know. Um, but in my heart, what I believed in the moment was, and what I chose to act on in the moment was, telling her about one of the times was qualitatively the same thing and so would get the Lord off my back, would satisfy my need to be truthful to my wife. And yet I held part of it in. And the lie was, if you tell her it was once, there's any number of excuses you can give. And there's any number of things that you can say about the experience that can help convince her that this is done. But if you tell her it was twice, that brings up a whole other can of worms. Right? And in my heart, just being honest here, it was that it wasn't satisfying or that it wasn't something I wanted 
I tried it. wasn't good. I left it. And it certainly wasn't satisfying, but that was the lie. <clears throat> and so that changed our life. <laughs> it really did. Uh, on the outside, um, that was the first time I had confessed to my wife. And so I began going, to attending Celebrate Recovery at Watermark Church. Um, learned a lot of new knowledge. Applied a lot of new techniques for how to um, get out of the sin that I was in. How to get healing. I walked the 12 steps. And step number 12 is bringing the message to others. So I became a leader in Celebrate Recovery at Watermark, and then it became their ministry called Regeneration. Um, and so for the next couple of years, I was um, a leader in reco- men's recovery ministry, where about 60% of the people were dealing with the same thing. Other people go for any, any number of things, um, anywhere from you know, illicit drug use to just pride and anger issues. Um, I believe that it's a good program. I encourage anyone to go. But as I already told you, I didn't start out the experience being honest. And that shame still had a foothold in my life because of that, and it grew. And it was not, I don't even think it was two months that time, after that initial confession to where the the life that I was living under the surface continued. And it got worse. It did not go back to where it was. It did not continue at the same level. It progressively got worse because that's what sin does in the darkness. It continues to get worse. So I continued to have adulterous affairs, began going to strip clubs, began going to massage parlors, began stealing money from work to pay for this. Multiple things of which could have and should have had more worldly consequences than they did. I should have gone to prison. So I, I continued to live two lives. I graduated with my bachelor's of biblical studies and I began going to school for counseling because I thought where the Lord wanted me to go was to help people. And I had this great facade going of someone who not only had learned how to help people, but had been through some stuff and had gotten healing and therefore had the ability to help other people. And I was so involved in helping other people, and yet I was so involved in my self-destruction under the surface that absolutely nobody knew about. (laughs) Not only did I not tell my wife, I certainly did not tell the men in my recovery groups that that level. um, That I was what James 1 calls a duplicitous man. And he says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. I started having um, a series of horrifying nightmares um, that came in any shapes and sizes, but essentially were all about being found out. Um, and so it all, came, it all came to a head. Again, that, that all happened over a multi-year period. And in May of 2013, Emily was in her second trimester, 
she had gotten pregnant. And that was probably a blessed impetus for the Lord to get through to me. Because now not only was I destroying my own life, and what I knew would eventually destroy my wife's life, could also eventually have any number of effects on my unborn child's life. And so, um, over those periods of years, I had, um, had multiple confessions to Emily about different things that were going on, and it was never, um, it was never the full truth. And so, that date, May 6, 2013, what was 10 years ago last week, um, was the first time that I had ever confessed to Emily everything, going back to that first event and to also telling her stuff about the past before her that she never knew about. Um, that did immense damage to her because not only did she find out more things that I had done, she found out that I had never once been truthful in our marriage. And so that called into question everything that she knew about me. Um, Psychologists say that men who do this to their wives, give their wives, the wives end up with a psychological profile of a rape victim. She, she was not the um, victim in that same sense in the flesh, but it did the same thing to um, her heart and to her mind. It is what, what the experts tell us. But there was a moment when the Lord just could finally convince me that it was all or nothing, that a little bit of darkness is all that it takes, that it cannot, you cannot heal without being known. And it's what I had been teaching people, I promise you. I knew it here but I had never fully given my life over to God in that way. I never had. I had never trusted God with who I was. I said I did. Yo, I didn't like it. I didn't go there on purpose. Every time I sinned in secret, I had serious anguish over my sin. I confessed to the Lord and I held certain promises that I had been taught. And I claim those promises like 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. I confessed to my God every time. And I asked him, I begged him, I pleaded for him to forgive me. And I did my best to believe his promise from that verse that it was done. That I really was forgiven and therefore could could move on, essentially, right? I'm good with God now. I don't have to live in that so I can move on. So I want to read you something from Romans 6 because the question has been posed to me over the years, do I think I was saved before that time? And I'll just be real honest with you. I don't know. I don't actually know. Um, I'm not really interested in knowing (laughs) too much. Um, Different theological perspectives would say different things, but here's one thing that certainly applied to my life. 
Romans 6 says, are we to con- What then? Are we to continue in sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace? Paul said, by no means. Do you not know that if you... This is essentially Paul's reasoning for giving his statement, by no means. He says, do you not know, and this is a warning, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. If you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, that means willingly, here I am, I'll be your slave. You are slaves of the one whom you obey. There is a, there is a willing submission that is possible with sin. If you submit yourself willingly, you can put chains on yourself, is what I believe that this passage is saying. Because this is speaking to people who are not under the law, but are under grace. And he's saying, be careful, don't do that. If you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And he goes on to talk about where that freedom comes from. But I believe that's where I was. I believe I had presented myself as an obedient slave because when the call came, you know, I, I resisted. I promise I did. I put all the accountability measures in my life to stop. It was me and God. It was me and God. In truth, fortunately, I would say unfortunately at the time, Fortunately, me and God is not how God designed this thing. I'm grateful when I look out in the faces of all of you and I can say that me and God is not how this life goes. My life is now intertwined with most everyone in this room. (laughs) And so the passage that I read a week or two ago From 1 John, God is light. In him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. Me and God handling my sin and telling everybody else it's everything's okay is not walking in the light. Even if I hate the sin, even if I'm trying to stop, that is not walking in the light. And so let the freedom card, Justin, that comes from me this week be a warning and an admonition and a pleading that that way doesn't work. Sin gets worse in the darkness no matter how much we try to stop it. If we say we we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth, but... If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I still believe that verse is true, but I believe it's in the context of walking in the light with fellowship with one another. I truly do. And that's why I think James 5.16 says it a little bit more clearly. If we confess our sins to one another, we will be healed. Not just forgiven. Maybe I was forgiven every single time that I asked for the Lord and I came to him in private. Maybe I was. But I wasn't being healed. I wasn't being healed because we can't heal in the darkness. Through, just to close the story, and then I have one thing to share. Um, Through sharing, being open, because what the Lord said in May of 2013 was, it's not going to be just you and me if you want to walk in the light. And it's not just going to be you and Emily. And it's not just going to be you and Emily and your counselor. And it's not just going to be y'all and your recovery group who I had to confess to and step down from leadership. It's going to be your church. And it's going to be your family. And it's going to be your boss who you stole from. And those things were painful, but they were absolutely necessary. And in that gracious um, body of people who didn't all accept me after that, um, but many did, and stood with me, um, we made the decision for me to leave Emily for a time to um, check myself into Denton Freedom House, which is a discipleship program up in Denton. Um, Most of the participants in, in the men's section go for um, drug and alcohol abuse, most of which are court-ordered. Um, I was there for something that they had never taken somebody for before and never had taken somebody that was married before, and so this was new for them. Um, but they, they just believed in the power of Jesus to heal and um, really learned about the truth of God's heart for me for the first time um, in being able to walk in the light and still be loved. I learned it partially from what they taught up there, but partially just out of practice. I believed that I had to leave for a time because of my own propensity to deceive myself. Because when I taught people, when I led people, some of it was effective, which is a little scary. When I led people out of their addictions, and when I went to school to be a counselor, I really believed things were okay. And I really convinced myself that I was okay. And I was scared of myself. And so I wanted to take myself out of the world for a time to actually get some healing. Those first 30 days with no contact with my wife and with um, no involvement in sexual sin was a really, really big deal. Because there had not been 30 days probably since I was 12. I mean, it was a really big deal. The rest is almost history. Um, When the Lord brought us back together right before Amelia was born, we came to Grace Covenant. 
I shared a little bit of this story the first day I was here. And I wasn't kicked out. I was taken to lunch. (laughs) I thought two things that day. This body is really crazy. And I thought, I'm probably never going to leave. Because I just knew if we changed churches and we didn't share right off the bat, I could very easily, even having gone through the summer of healing that I did, I could very easily be back in the dark again. I just knew what sin does. Sin seeks darkness. And I knew my own pattern. And the men and women of this body who have walked this out with me for the last ten years, nine and a half, almost ten years since we've been here, um, has just been the greatest display of God's love. Second to my wife, this body has been the greatest display for me of God's love and care and faithfulness because I've not been perfect since that date. I've messed up lots of times, but I've done so in a commitment of walking in the light, a commitment to confession to one another. And the men in this body, in particular, Paul and Carlos first. Paul, Randy, Tim, Tom, Micah, Paul Velasco, and others, many others, um, as well as women, have just been God's heart of love in my life that has been absolutely transformational. So I want to say thank you. And if you don't mind, I know it's 11.45. Can I read one more thing? I was struggling with the Lord in February of this year because I believed he was calling me to write, and I didn't know what to write. And long story short is, he said, shut up and put your pen on the paper. And I thought a song was coming out. It didn't turn out to be a song. It turned out to be a sort of poem. And I want to read that for you all today, if I can. Because this is just as true a reflection of my story, but written in a way that may be a little more universal for others. And so I hope this is encouraging. Called it matchless light. Darkness surrounded me. How long have I been here? How long living in fear? What am I actually afraid of? Myself? My past? Being seen? Love? Am I inside or outside? Does the darkness mean the sun has gone down? Or have I just turned the lights out, turned out the lights? Perhaps the world is bright, and I just have a blindfold on my eyes. No, I think the room really is dark, and I just can't find the switch. Wait, here's a match. Now I've got the itch to shed a little light. It'll be a cinch. I'll just strike it now and find out how to leave behind this senseless world. Strike one. Quick, blow it out. What did I just see? A mirror shining my face back at me? No way. That's the last thing I want to see. That face, those evil eyes that have told so many lies, that have hurt so many people, though they don't yet realize. Those eyes that have hurt myself, 
that have put my spirit on the shelf while my heart is dragged through the mud. My blood starts to boil when I think of all I've done, like I'm not the one who's done it. So what choice do I have but to continue to hide, to fake it and hope I make it as I continue to glide through my life and keep my secrets deep inside? But it's not working. I just keep on hurting myself while I'm living this lie. The ground is so tricky. I can move slow or quickly. Either way, I fall on my face. If I could just face myself in the mirror, my reflection that brings so much fear, or maybe I can just look away. Either way, it's time to try again, to come to grips with my sin so I can at least find my way. Strike two. Now people surround me. My friends and my family, they smiled at me and they said, we love you. I smiled right back and said the same. And then I took a deep breath and I blew. Sweet darkness again. If they only knew the real me, they'd leave me behind. They'd kick me out of their circles, no doubt, and they'd all just go on with their lives. But I need them too much. I can't let them go, and I cannot be left all alone. They say they love me, and I know they mean well. But how could they even know? They just think they love me. But all that they know is this mask that I've worn, though I've worn it so thin that the cracks are beginning to show. But my tripping and falling is hurting them too. In the darkness, I cannot protect them. Not even from myself, though I've tried and I've tried, my actions seem to do nothing but wreck them. So I'll try once again for my family and friends to bring a little light, just a little, now mind, into the dark room of my heart. I don't have much faith in just what will change, but it's all I can do, my small part. Strike three. Now this is a surprise. I'm looking into eyes that somehow feel real and feel true. Like they see the real me, the really real me. And better than me, they can view the good and the bad. All I've thought and all I've done. And and with loving sadness, they seem to say, You've tried the darkness, the toughness, the hardness of heart, but there's a better way than stumbling and groping and hurting and moping and running like scared, hopeless prey. What you need is not matches, not fire and ashes. What you need is the bright, shining day. He's pointing to a window that I didn't know was there, a window with shades pulled down tight. But just then, the match seemed my fingers to catch unawares. And it brought back the night. But now that I've glimpsed his face, I cannot erase the feeling that it gave my heart. To be seen and still loved. To be known and still loved. So I sprang forward with a start. Immediately I fell. And then I could tell that the window wasn't as close as I thought. But I tried again, pushing forward and then across the room, the dark room I fought. I found the wall, but no window at all. Could I feel so I started to run my hand along and I prayed that I'd find the curtain that I just wanted to pull I fell again harder this time 
and I could feel blood on my face. I couldn't move. I couldn't get up. I felt like such a disgrace. But then I remembered those eyes and those hands and the way that his loving gaze felt. I remembered, though in darkness, I was not alone. So I reached out my hand and said, Help! A loving, scarred hand, gentle and strong, pulled me back upright again. Two more steps and I found it, the curtain behind which I knew was the daylight I must let in. So I pulled the shades open. Daylight came in. I almost fell over. I shielded my eyes, but the light was so warm and so true. It got deep inside me, was better than hiding. I turned around to look at the view. The room of my heart was a mess, I could tell. But he was standing right there with me. I could see it all clearly, the mess I had made, but he held my hand and still loved me. My family and friends were still there too, for the most part, even with the mask of darkness now gone. I felt a new kind of love now that they really knew me, a love that I hadn't known with my mask on. Sometimes the light dims, I don't mean for it to. But the window again, but the window must be opened again. In the darkness, I'm sick. I stumble and fall, and I hurt those I love with my sin. But daylight brings healing and clarity and love. It's by daylight that living things grow. I'm not perfect, and I still need grace from above. But in darkness, never again will I go. I just want to end with repeating the words of the chorus song before last. Your name is power. Your name is healing. Your name is life. Break every stronghold. Shine through the shadows. Burn like a fire.